This morning, I want to continue in our series that we started last week on, uh, on relationships. We called the series Sacred because we believe that our relationships are sacred. We believe that there is a divine element to community. There's a divine element uh, to marriage, to parenting, to friendship, um, to all the relationships that we have in our lives. And we believe that there are some things that God wants to do in your life that He has chosen to only do through the context of relationships. It's within a context of a community and a walk and a journey with others that we find freedom. That's why when we get to step two of what our church is about, step one is to know God. We do that here on Sundays. We want to express the heart of God as, as much as we can and the character and the nature and the love of God and give you a clearer picture of Jesus and the gospel. Um, but in community, Unity is where you really get the support to walk out some things that you've been struggling with or that you've been carrying for many years. You see, there's an active journey that happens when you start to connect with others where people allow you the freedom and the space to begin to process some of the things that you've been carrying, to begin to walk out and walk through some of the, the doubts and the fears and the anxieties and the things. It's, it's the support that we have around us that really is God's avenue of grace that God, that God uses to shape us and to help us find freedom. And so you're not going to find complete freedom unless you're walking on a journey. That's why our connect groups are so important. And we've got Connect Sunday coming up next Sunday. Uh, and we want every person to be in a connect group, even if right now you're saying, I'm, I don't know if I can go all the way to a Bible study group or, or one of those topical groups, but what I can do is I can go play some golf with some people, or I can go and hang out, or I can go do a party run or I can just find some community because it's in those relationships that we over time as we learn to trust become more and more honest and we actually speak about the stuff that's going on and we find freedom and so we believe that that is how God intended for us to live that's why God is so intent on community and on church because this church is not a building this church is a people the church is a people, it's, it's ecclesia, it's the called out ones, it's a community, and that's why we say that it doesn't matter, we have had three different venues since we started Anchor Church, it's not about the venue, it's not about the building, but we've still always only been one church, because the church is the people, it's the community, it's the family, it's the home, and you are welcome in this family, because of what Jesus has done for you, we are all welcomed into the family of God, and so, and so we are looking at the significance, and the meaning, and the power of relationships in the series and how God uses them to shape us um, and to be, cause us to become the people He intends for us to be. And the reason why this is a, a, such an important topic for us to speak on, not only because of the value that Scripture puts on relationships and on community and, and on every form of relationship, but at the same time how difficult we often find it to be um, uh, in healthy relationships to be successful in our relationships, to experience peace in our relationships, um, because relationships are hard. Uh, we we want to be as authentic as possible here at Anchor Church, and so um, we, we couldn't talk about a series on relationships and just kind of speak about all the surface-level niceties, like an, like an Instagram page that just shows you all the beautiful things, that, without actually saying that the reason why we are so uh, intent on sharing on this topic and, and helping you in this area is because we all are aware of the fact that relationships are difficult, that they are difficult because we as people are difficult that we are imperfect and flawed and riddled with all kinds of contradiction uh, within us. And, and so, um, uh, you know, we, we, we battle in this area. And I don't know why, as people, we always think that we're the only ones who battle. That we think that everybody else is doing just great in this area, that nobody else struggles in their marriage, nobody else has issues in their friendships, nobody else um, has lost it as a parent, nobody else is, uh, is struggling. We think that everybody else has got this down except for us. We, we, we kind of tend to think that we're the only ones that have tough moments, and then we, we flip through Instagram uh, uh, pages, and I'm going to refer to a couple of snapshots that we see, because this is often the standard that we use in today's society to measure our own relationships. We look at a snapshot of a couple or a snapshot of a parent or whatever, and we judge our own relationships according to these snapshots, and we kind of look at Instagram going, well, I'm sure they aren't struggling, or I'm sure they never have any arguments, or I'm sure they never fight, or I'm sure their kids, you know, always listen to them, you know. Uh, I took my kids, all three of them, shoe shopping yesterday, 
Um, if you've ever tried that, try going into a shoe store with, um, you know, an, an almost seven-year-old and two almost five-year-olds um, and trying on shoes. Um, so there's like shoes everywhere. There's kids everywhere. And I see this other mom like walking with her son and the son's just quiet. He doesn't say anything. They just like walk quietly. And I'm like, you know, I'm sure they're like that all the time. Meanwhile, my kids are the best way that they can think of, the best thing that they can think to do to test out their new shoes is to do a 100-meter dash down the aisle shouting, this is the greatest day of my life. You know, there goes my kid, and this one's all quiet. And I'm like, why aren't my boys quiet like that boy? You know, if you're a parent, you've probably gone through something like that where you think everybody else's kids are just quiet and good and just listen all the time. It's, there's something wrong with mine. And, uh, or if you've got a relationship and you see a couple and they have like one happy moment, you're like, I'm sure they're happy all of the time. I don't know what's wrong with me or my relationships. And this is what we do. We, we judge ourselves on snapshots. And, um, and that's why um, I've learned to be ultra compassionate when I see a mom or a dad or a parent um, struggling with their kids in a moment because, man, I feel like I can relate. You know, I feel like I just want to go over and give them a hug and tell them that they're doing a great job, you know, because I wished sometimes that people would do that for me when I was, uh, when I was raising my boys and as I've been raising them. And, and I once sat at a, at a table working at a restaurant, and there was a mom with two little girls sitting at the table next to me. And these two little girls, you know, they get to that phase, it's probably around 18 months to two years, where being on a chair is not sufficient, on the table is better, um, and they're knocking everything over is better. So you have like this mom, then she like moves the salt, and then she moves the pepper, and then she moves the sugar, and then she moves the glasses, and then she, and eventually it's just like a bare table with a child rolling around on it. Um, you know, it's just because it's, and it's just so maddening. I could see she was just like at the end of her rope. She was like ready to cry, and she was worried that the girls were bothering me because obviously it looked like I was working. I was actually working. So, um, so she said, and she's like, no, she, and she's trying to just keep them going. And I turned to her and I was like, I have, I have twin boys and one that's two years older than them. And I can tell you, I'm not bothered. I'm not distracted. Let them, let them roll around. Let them do their thing. Don't worry about me. And she nearly burst out crying because of the relief of like trying to contain these children. And, um, and so, you know, we, we, we worry in our relationships and we, you know, the truth is, is that we don't know how honest we can really be with others. Like, you know, if, if you're struggling uh, in a relationship, and you know, sometimes those struggles are just a natural process. It's a natural part of the relationship. It doesn't mean the relationship is bad. It doesn't mean it's broken down. It doesn't mean it's not going to work out. It's just a part of the relationship. But then we worry if we say that, if people are going to label the entire relationship for all of its future context as, as, as a bad one or as one that struggles. And so when we go through struggles, we find we can't really, or we, we don't feel comfortable being honest about those struggles because we wonder how people will label us as a result. And when you're a pastor, this is just amplified. Because when you're a pastor, people expect your, your relationships to all be perfect all of the time, for your parenting to be perfect and, 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 and for your kids to be perfect. And, and you really, it's easy to feel judged. And so if you struggle, you feel like you can't actually say, hey, I'm struggling in this area or today's a tough day. Or, and, and I love it when pastors, I actually find it really refreshing when pastors are just honest. You know, I remember Judah Smith saying that, uh, hey, I'm, you know, he wrote in his one book, he said, hey, I'm sorry I didn't reply to your text telling me that you were having issues in your marriage because I was too busy having an argument with my wife, you know? So it's like, sometimes you, we forget that pastors have their own issues, and, and, and so sometimes they're, they're also battling with stuff, and uh, don't just have the perfect setup. Um, and, I, and I know that Phil Dooley, who is uh, somebody that I look up to uh, um, in, in he, leading Hillsong South Africa here, and, and uh, I've had uh, the opportunity to sit down with him once or twice for a lunch and just uh, talk about life and stuff. And one of the best things is, um, you know, him and Lucinda are a great couple. They love each other. They lead uh, an influential church. Um, but sometimes they'll arrive at, at, at the office and tell their staff, hey, guys, we just had an argument in the car, so just give us some space. We'll be fine in a few moments. And they're just, just real people because that's real life. We're real people, and we have issues, and we're imperfect, and, and sometimes we just need a moment. And, and, um, and, and there's um, a, an expectation that we often put on ourselves um, and, and we struggle to, we, we often suffer alone in these areas because we think nobody else is going through this, it's only me. And that's why it's so important to have community, to have relationships and friendships that you can actually, people that you can phone and say, you know what, I'm struggling today, or we're going through a tough season right now, or, or this is why I feel 
um, upset or whatever, and just to process with people. Um, and so if a real relationship, you know, we, we, we take so many cues from the movies these days, from Hollywood, in terms of how we evaluate our relationships, what's a good relationship, what's a bad relationship. But the truth is that if our relationships was a movie, um, it would be a lot more like Jurassic Park than Twilight, okay? <laughs> Let's just be honest this morning. Your relationships is a lot more like Jurassic Park than it is Twilight. So, so just set your expectations in the right place. They say that, that marriage is a walk in the park, Jurassic Park, right? That's, that's basically what marriage is like. And, uh, and, and so I love it when I can find stuff that I can just really relate to. Um, and so I often, every year, the Huffington Post and a couple of other um, blogs and, and, and news outlets, they, they put out the best, most relatable um, marriage tweets of the year. And I was reading some of them last night. I'm telling you, I was, one of them I laughed for about 15 minutes, um, just the one tweet. But I'm going to read some of them to you this morning. Um, so this girl says, a fun part of marriage is arguing over who deserves the, the use of the charger in the car. Prove it. Show me your percentage. <laughs> Marry your true love so that you can always wake up together and say, breathe the other way. <laughs> I love my husband, but no matter where we are, I make him sleep closest to the door so if anything happens, he gets murdered first. Tell me how tired you are so I can upstage you and tell you how much more tired I am marriage, okay? I open the dishwasher and it's full of clean dishes and I'm scared my wife's going to know that I know. <laughs> Text from my wife, I'm so sorry, I'm going to be about half an hour late. Me, forgot we were even meeting, still in bed, you always do this. <laughs> my wife and I just snoozed two separate alarm clocks for two and a half hours. This is the exact relationship I hoped for. Wife, you forgot to run the dishwasher again, didn't you? Me, drinking from milk from a flower vase. No, why? <laughs> Let's get married and have kids, so instead of doing fun stuff on the weekend, we can go to kids' birthday parties where everyone coughs. <laughs> Me, the kids have ruined their shoes. Wife, again? Ugh, just throw them out later. Me, stop crying, kids. Your mum says you have to leave. <laughs> this is my absolute favorite one. Wife, why are you breathing like that? Our oh, marriage, where you can be questioned for continuing to live. <laughs> there were so many more. I don't have time to go through all of them, but yeah, that had me in stitches last night. Um, just love that you can be questioned for continuing to live. That's a good summary of, uh, of, of what marriage can feel like at times. And, um, and you know, whenever I do... And marriage counseling, and as a young church, we've got a lot of young people, so I've, I've done more weddings in the last three years than I did in all the years as a pastor before that combined, um, and, uh, and it's awesome, and I get to sit with couples, and we get to talk through marriage, and, and talk about the expectations, and talk about the realities of marriage, and, and what I always start with is drawing two circles, and so these two circles represent both of you, and then I fill both of those circles with as many cracks as I can, and I say, this is the reality of who you are as people. Both of you are imperfect, flawed people that have cracks in different areas, and, um, and the deeper that you go and the longer you are married and, and the more uh, intimate you are with one another and, 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 and who you are as a person, the more real you are, more vulnerable you are, the more of these cracks are going to show. And so oftentimes when you start dating or when you're, when you're engaged or before you get married, you only see maybe one level deep in terms of people. Yeah, oh, they have some, you know, some, some uh, idiosyncrasies and they have a few little things about them, but those aren't so serious. Like, we can work through. You don't necessarily see how deep the crack goes, and it's only once you're married, it's only once you're in that relationship, and it's only once our relationships deepen, even with our friendships and, and all of our other relationships, that you begin to see um, some real flaws and some real cracks within each other, and more importantly, you begin to see some of those cracks within yourself. If you think that you are a great person that has no flaws, you're probably not in any real relationships, because if you were in real relationships, those flaws would have a spotlight shone on them sooner or later. And so a lot of couples, when they get to that level where all of a sudden there's this brokenness that, becomes, that they become aware of, they say, well, you're not the person I married. You've changed. 
No, they didn't change. You just didn't see all of that stuff to begin with. It was always there, and now you're seeing it. Um, and now you're seeing a truer reflection or a truer version of who this person is. But what God intends for marriage and for our relationships is that it could be so real and so authentic and that we could be so committed to each other that even when we find the flaws and even when we see the flaws in each other, that it would still be a safe space to be vulnerable and honest about those flaws. In other words, the kind of relationships that God desires for us to have is the relationships where we could be more truly ourselves than anywhere else in the world where we feel so much pressure to put on an act to pretend like we have it all together, to pretend like our lives looks like Instagram, our perfect life that we always Instagram. We, we want the kind of relationship where we go, my, my life's not perfect. My friends know this. The people closest to me know this. My kids know this. My family knows this. I'm not perfect. My life's not perfect, but I know that I'm loved anyways. That's the kind of relationship God wants. I know that this is a safe space, that I'm not gonna be rejected or, or, or disregarded or, or kicked out because there's something wrong in me but that instead I will, be, uh, I will find grace from those around me to, to support me as I grow. Because we're going to get better, and I believe that that's one of the best things that true relationships do, is that they actually open up you to you. You actually begin to, as a reflection in your relationship, see what are the issues that you really have, what are the insecurities that you really have, and then more than being honest with anybody else, you can start becoming honest with yourself. And you can start going to God. You see, this is not a, when you find the flaws within yourself because of the gospel, it's not something that condemns you, that shames you, that breaks you down, that makes you want to run away and hide. In fact, it just it makes you bold. It makes you be able to stand up and stand before God and say, God, I need help. God, I recognize that I have this issue. God, I recognize I'm carrying this insecurity. God, I find it difficult to forgive. I find it difficult um, you know, to, to operate in the way that you long for me to operate in our relationships because I have these issues. God, can you help me? And so it leads to increased intimacy with God and a higher dependency upon His grace. And as we do that, part of the process is, is that we find healing. Healing begins to happen, and God uses our relationships to, to, to open up some of those things that we've been hiding up and so that He can pour His grace into it. And so even though it doesn't feel nice, there's healing that comes. And that's where we sometimes think that a great relationship is where no wounds get opened up. But you know what? Sometimes if you need to have healing in your life, the wounds need to be opened up. If you go to the doctor, if you go and have surgery, if he's going to bring healing to you through his, his medical practice, through what he does, he's going to cut you open first so that he can get to the things that are inside. And through that process, even though it's painful in the moment to be on the operating table, in the long run, it leads to healing. But when it comes to our relationships, we so often think that if this hurts, it can't be right. If there's something that feels like this, this puts some pressure on a, a sensitive area for me, then it, it can't be a healthy relationship, and it might just be the healthiest relationship you've ever had. And so we've got to understand how God works in our relationships and how relationships work. I often tell people that if, if, if I just push on my arm like this right now, I'm not responding. My, my response would be proportionate to the pressure that's being applied. But if I had a broken arm, and I put that same amount of pressure on my arm right now, my response would be far greater. And so when there is brokenness beneath, you can often see it by a disproportionate response. This often happens in marriage. You say one thing and, um, and your, your, your spouse flips out about what you've said. And it seems so disproportionate. It's because there's some brokenness there or because there's a sensitivity there or because there's something that needs to be dealt with there. And we're the same way. We react oftentimes, we're like, you're overreacting, but the overreaction isn't based on, on, on that point, that stimulus that, that produced that reaction in the moment. It's actually, it's touched on something far deeper. And that is um, a part of how relationships work. And we've got to become wise in this area and understand that we've all got those bruises. We've all got those broken bones. We've all got those insecurities. But if we will trust one another and trust God to bring healing to our lives, that even when people uh, through their relationship put pressure on those areas, that God could actually use it to do something incredible in your life. The issue that we have with relationships is that we've been sold a lie. We've been given a false perception and false expectation of what being in a real relationship looks like, and we miss 
that the beauty of relationships often lies in the difficult moments. It lies in the struggle. It lies in the process. It lies in the progress. And I'm not talking about unhealthy relationships. I'm not talking about toxic relationships or abusive relationships. There are some relationships that, um, that, that, that for our own good and for the good of our family, we should get out of, right? I'm not talking about abuse or anything like that. I'm talking about healthy relationships, but what, that are still difficult, that still experience um, um, difficult moments and tough moments. Um, the, there's beauty in progressing and staying committed and walking through that. We've been sold on too many romantic comedies, is the, is the honest truth, of what real love looks like. What real love actually looks like. We, we, we've got an idea and a picture, all these stories that end in the words, and they live happily ever after without explaining that ever after took a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of hard work. And so we have a very immature one-dimensional view of love, to be honest, in our world today, and that view that we have really doesn't give us the ability to sustain relationships in a healthy way. There's an issue there. And that's why today I'm talking to you about sacred love. I want to talk to you a little bit about more than just having a one-dimensional view of love. I want to talk to you about what love really is and how we know that we really experience it and how we know we can really walk in it. 1 John 4 verse 8 simply says, anyone who does not love does not know God. When it talks about God being love, it says because God is love. Not that He has love or He's very loving or He's, you know, 99% loving. He is, he is complete love. He is total love. He is absolute love because He is love. And every definition that we have of love um, stems from God. It is he, he is the one that, that introduced love into the world, that, that created the world with love, that puts love in our hearts, that gave us the capacity to love. It all comes from God, and we were created in His image, which is why we can experience love, and we can know love. We can know the love of God. And, and when it uses the word love there in the Greek, it talks about the word agape, the God kind of love. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But, but anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In our world today, however, uh, we've become so selfish when we think about love. We've become so self-centered when we think about love or being in love that we primarily think, when we think about being in love, when we think about a love relationship, we primarily think of the things that we can get from it or how it will make us feel. I want to feel like this. I want to be made to feel like this. I, 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 this is what I want to get out of it. This is how happy I would be if somebody loved me like this. It's almost exclusively self-serving and self-centered. I want to be married because I want to feel like this, or I want to be in a relationship because I want to feel like this. We make it about ourselves. If we say that we want to experience love, but our definition of love is primarily that of self-love, then we haven't yet come to understand the fullness of true love. Love is not self-love or selfishness or self-centered. It's, it's actually the opposite. And so many, many people, um, you know, especially young people, when, when, they, when they think about love or they think about marriage or they think about parenting, they think that all of those things are there to make them happy. But God has a bigger vision for your life than just making you feel happy. He actually wants you to be happy, and He wants you to be happy by being holy. He wants to produce something in your life that's rich, that's expensive, that's deep, that's true, that's authentic, something that can't be shaken, something that's not fleeting, something that's not just an emotion for a moment where you feel nice, but then you get bored again, and then you're disillusioned, and then you become disappointed. That's what happens in our relationships when we have these expectations and these pictures and these Hollywood movies that have dictated our perspective to us as to what a real, happy, healthy relationship looks like. And then when it doesn't turn out to be quite that or it's only that for a short while and then it looks like something different as it progresses, we say, well, I'm disillusioned, I'm disappointed. This is not the kind of relationship that they wanted and, 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 and I'm done with this and I'll find somebody new to help me feel the way that I want to feel. It's an immature view of love. It's a lie that we've been sold. God has got a bigger vision for your life. It's not all about you being happy. Even marriage isn't about your happiness as much as it is about your holiness. God is doing something in you even through the difficulties of, of, of marriage and parenting and relationships. God is shaping us and molding us and, um, and, and, 
and we've got to understand that. People experience great measures of disillusionment in their relationships. One of the first things I also do in, in, in the premarital counseling is I'll, I'll draw a line and I'll say this, this here is expectation. Your expectation might have been set by many different factors, but this is your expectation of what marriage looks like. And somewhere down here is reality of what it really looks like to share your life with another human being 24-7. And then I draw a line and I say this space in between is called disappointment. And so we want to help you set the right kinds of expectations and different kinds of expectations because the things that you expected might not be like that at all, but there are things that you haven't expected that are far greater than what you can imagine, the beauty of it and, and the blessing of it as you, as you walk it out. And so um, I remember hearing um, the story about uh, two single people that went on a train, a young guy and a young girl, and, um, and, uh, and, and they got onto a train and um, they ended up in the same train car overnight trip. And so uh, the guy said that, that he would take the bottom bunk and the girl got up into the top bunk. And in the middle of the night, she was feeling cold. And so she whispered down to him and said, hey, um, would, would you mind getting me a blanket? I'm, I'm feeling a little bit cold. And he said, you know what? I have a great idea. Let's pretend like we're married. And, and uh, she was like, <laughs> okay. And he was like, <laughs> get your own blanket. So you can just become disillusioned and disappointment if your expectations aren't met. Just get your own blanket. But that's the one-dimensional view we have of love. And this is perfectly illustrated by the fact that in English, um, we only have one word for love. Even though the Bible in the New Testament uses four different words for love, and we see these four loves in, in the Hebrew as well expressed throughout the Scriptures, that there was more than one kind of love. But in English, we're so one-dimensional in our view of love that we use the word love um, interchangeably to describe how we feel about our family, about our pets, about our favorite sports teams and TV shows, and even various inanimate objects. We still use the word love um, for those same things. But the Greek has four words for love, and you may have heard this before. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Four Loves, and, and many pastors have preached on this. Um, but it just shows us the beauty of the nuance and the, and the variation or the varying expressions of love that we get to experience in this world. And what it does when we understand that there is more than one kind of love is it actually helps us to bring, bring clarity to us. It, ge it gives us clarity as to what love really is and how we can, in our own minds and hearts, when we say that we love something or we love someone, we can understand where that love comes from, what kind of love it is, and how close it is to the God kind of love. And so it's important for us to understand this. And so uh, in the bit of time that we have, I just wanted to run through these. And I'm going to show you kind of a, a pic that I took off of Instagram for each of them to show what they would re be represented as if they were in, represented as an Instagram pic. And the first one that everybody is normally the most focused on, and when they talk about love, this is what they think about, is the word eros, which is the Greek word for romantic love. And if we look at one of them, this is a real Instagram pic, um, that would be eros for people. That's kind of when they think, I want a relationship. I want to be loved. I want love. That's what they think about. They think about a young couple that's, that's um, unrealistically beautiful, um, kissing in a great setting with a nice filter. You know, that to them is, that's what I want. You know, they'll look at photos like that. And, the, you know, you might even have created a Pinterest board that says, what I want. And this is one of those things. <laughs> yeah, hashtag relationship goals. This is what we what we think about when we think about love, but this is uh, actually just a form of love called eros, and, um, and it's romantic love, and it's attraction, and let me say this, all forms of love are created by God. We see it in, in, in the Song of Solomon, the, the romantic affection and intimacy that's experienced is something that God wants us to experience. It's, it's not a bad thing. God wants us to experience attraction, and, and within the healthy context of marriage, sexual intimacy, and and, and, and the excitement of all of that, God wants us to, to experience that because it has a role and it has a function in how it binds people together that are committed to one another. It has a, a role of, of uniting people, uh, two people, and, and bringing them together, and this is the way that God designed it, but this is just a form of love, and it is a second-place love. It is not the truest form of love. It is not the deepest form of love. 
And it is an expression that, um, of something that can be very fleeting and lead to a lot of brokenness if it is not um, set in the context of the God kind of love. If it doesn't have a foundation of commitment and covenant, and that's why we encourage young people to, to consider that as they build their lives, to not put eros as their idol, not to hold it up as, as an idol, because to be honest, we, we can make idols out of photos like those and out of a desire for relationships like that or for that experience. But what you don't know is after that couple kissed, they had to go inside and somebody had to wash the dishes and somebody else had to make dinner and then they had, somebody had to take the trash out and then, and then one of them had bad breath because they hadn't brushed their teeth since the morning. And like that is the reality of what happens after that photo is taken. But we don't see that. We just see the photo and go, oh, I want that. It's like, okay, then go start doing the dishes. Let's have it. You know, like that's what it is. So that's, that's eros, the romantic kind of love. Then there's uh, phileo, which is the brotherly kind of love. And I took a photo from my own Instagram of my boys um, sitting at home. This is a rare moment. They're not like that all the time. Um, so don't be fooled by my Instagram either. Um, but but th- that idea, the idea is one of true friendship and brotherly love. And, uh, and an expression of, of love between, between people. And, and where um, phileo is, is really different from eros is that eros would normally have, uh, a couple would normally be facing each other. They'd be face to face. And if a couple sat down uh, for, for dinner together, a romantic couple, they would sit and they would, they would talk to each other about their love. They would talk about how much they love each other. But in a friendship, if you did that, um, it would be weird, okay? So, so you don't, if you're your best friend, you don't sit down and go, hey, man, I just love you, man. Like, you are so great, and I just love the way that, you know, you're kind to me, and I just think that you're the best, and it's like, why are you being weird, bro? <laughs> like, don't, don't say this stuff, okay, to me. So, so, so phileo is, is different. Eros, they would talk about each other, but in phileo, that would never happen, okay? And so we, romantic love is face-to-face, Friendship is side by side. More two people going in the, right, in, in the same direction, walking together on a journey and, um, and, and, and having that kind of brotherly affection um, for each other. And we see this in the Scriptures. For example, um, the, 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 um, one of the, the best parts of Scripture talks about friendship. It talks about David and Jonathan. It talks about how their hearts uh, were knit together in this friendship, this undying friendship that they had and how committed they were to one another. And this is not just camaraderie or collaboration. Um, true friendship is a bit more. It's a bit more than that. And how you can often tell when it's a true friendship is that you know that sometimes you kind of, through the, 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 you know, the run of life um, and you know, working in different environments or being in school together, or you, you come into contact with different people. And then for a while, you might be doing the same activities or working in the same space or being in the same season of life, and you find there is another person in that same season or doing that same activity that you connect with, and you feel like you're really great friends. But then a point comes where one of those two people has to move away or moves to another city, and let's say you don't see each other for five years, and five years later you see each other again, and you know that there is some affection from the past, and you're like, oh, and, and then you'll reminisce, remember that time when we did this, and remember that, some of you, you bump into an old high school friend, and you're like, remember that time we went on tour, and we did this, and this, and this, but once you've kind of exhausted the stories of what you used to do, you kind of stand there with nothing left to say, like, there's clearly no other connection here except what happened in the past, and that normally means that phileo didn't fully develop in that relationship. It was, it was a relationship that worked for the time, but over time, there isn't that connection, whereas when you have a genuine phileo kind of friendship, brotherly love with somebody, um, you don't have to see them. If you saw them five years later um, and you sat together, you would be connected as if you had seen each other yesterday. All of a sudden, you'd be talking and you'd be sharing your heart and there would be conversation and there would be connection because there's true friendship. And that's one of the ways that we can see this. And, And I love this illustrated in Scripture where we know that Peter denied Jesus before he, on the night that he was betrayed um, and, and taken away and, and, and the next day crucified. We know that Peter denied Jesus, his friend. He had affection for Jesus. He loved Jesus. Um, and, uh, and, and, and he had this affection. And then, and then in the moment 
um, he, he, he denied Jesus three times. And we then see that, you know, after Jesus was crucified and, and resurrected, he sees Peter again. And he has this interchange. Peter is on the, uh, is on the boat. Uh, sorry, yeah, Peter's on the boat and he sees Jesus on the beach. And, and Peter dives into the water. He swims out to Jesus. You know, he just, he's so glad that he gets to see Jesus again. And by the time he gets there, this is how we know that Jesus loves South Africans. Jesus had made a little braai on the beach. He's like, bring some of that fish. We're going to have a braai. We're going to chat. And then they eat, and they first just spend some time eating together. And then um, at one point in John 21, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The word that Jesus uses there for love is, again, agape, the God kind of love. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I agape you. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? He changes the word in the Greek. He says agape, agape, and then phileo. Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me in a committed way? Do you love me affectionately? As, my, as, a, as a brother, as a friend. And I believe that what Jesus was doing here is that he was actually establishing the fact with Peter that the relationship, even though they had been separated for a while, that the connection hadn't been lost. That there was still something genuine between Jesus and Peter. You can imagine if you have disappointed a friend in a big way, it would be the equivalent of, of, of that friend seeing you again after you had betrayed them and putting their arms around you and saying, you're still my friend. We're still close. We're still connected. And this is how Jesus restored Peter by confirming that he not only agapes him, but he phileos him as well. There's affection and there's true friendship there. So that's phileo. Then we have storge. Um, storge is an interesting one. If, uh, if it was an Instagram pic, it would look like this. A guy on a really comfortable chair, probably in his own home, hopefully, with no shoes on, and his dog kind of sleeping on his lap. Um, that is a, a very good picture. And this is an actual Instagram photo, and I don't know who that guy is. Um, um, but I hope he doesn't mind this morning. But, but this kind of love is the familiar kind of love. This is the kind of love that we develop because we are in a certain home. We can have, in relationships with our family members, uh, we can have storge. It's, it's present in, in our relationship with our family. It's present in our relationships with our, with our friends. You know, that there's just the fact that they're familiar to you. It's a familiar face. It's people that you're comfortable with. And it's the, it, what, what a pair of comfortable jeans or, or a favorite T-shirt is to your body, what, a, what, a, what a, a, a comfortable couch, even if it's a worn-out old couch, is to your body, that's what storge is to your emotions. It's comfort, it's ease, it's relaxation, it's, it's a place that, that you can be yourself completely and truly. And um, the thing about storge is that normally with, with a friendship or a relationship, like a romantic relationship, you can recognize when it began. But storge has no recognized beginning point. When you become aware of it, it's because it probably has already existed for a while. Like if you were going to move out of your home that you grew up in as a child, for those of you that have done it, or, or a home that you really loved, that word love there would be the word storge. Because you don't agape your home, that would be weird. You, you, you storge because it's familiar. You know the nooks and the crannies of the house. You know where the sun comes through the window. You know where you like to sit in the afternoons. You know how, uh, how the garden makes you feel. You, you know, I, I have a lot of storge for my pillow. Anybody got a, like a, a love relationship with your pillow and you go to a, a hotel that can be five star, but it cannot produce what your pillow can produce in your life because there is some affection for the way that that thing holds my head while I sleep at night, you know? Or if you've traveled for a while and you come home, and I'm just gonna be real with you this morning, and you see your own toilet, <laughs> right? How much affection do we have for our own toilet? You've been out shopping all day, you come home, you open the door, you're like, hey there, little buddy, you know? I love you, man. There's nothing like your own toilet at home. This is storge. I 
told you I took up my, my boys um, shoe shopping and, and, and I think my youngest boy, Jude, his capacity for storge is incredibly large. Okay? It, it, it's disproportionately large, some would say. Um, he walks around with things that he likes to hold. Um, he likes to, for example, his pillow, his proper full-size pillow from his bed. Um, he likes it, but he doesn't want the pillowcase on. And so he'll get home from school, he'll go upstairs, he'll take the pillowcase off, and he'll carry around the bare pillow and just like sit with it wherever he is and hold on to it. And he loves comfort, so he doesn't want to wear jeans. He, you know, if it makes him feel weird or whatever, he is so tactile as well. And so yesterday, we took, I took him shoe shopping because he had a hole in the shoe um, that he was currently wearing, and the, the, the laces were basically disintegrated. You could hardly tie them. It's like tying 45 pieces of string to get his shoes tied. And, um, and so I, I take him to the Nike factory store, and I put on these, this brand-new pair of Nikes. They look great. I'm like, these are great shoes. Um, and, and he puts them on. He kind of he says, I don't like them. I don't like the way they feel. He takes them off. He puts on his shoe with a hole on, and he says, I don't want new shoes. Right? <laughs> now, that's proper store gay. The lady who is helping us there in the store goes, I've never seen this. Like a five-year-old turning down a pair of Nikes because he prefers his, his shoes with the holes in them. That's storge. It's the comfort. It's the ease. It's the relaxation. And we can feel that with people. You know when you have genuine relationships where you don't need to talk. There doesn't have to be any space fillers. That Nobody has to say anything in order for it to not be awkward because you're just comfortable in each other's space. That's familiarity. It's storge. And, um, and, and this is found both in friendship, in phileo, brotherly love, and also in eros. In romantic relationships, storge is usually present as well. And normally, storge is this kind of thing that um, it endures before it enjoys. You don't necessarily love your home the first moment you move into it or a pair of shoes the first moment that you wear it, but over time, it, be, it forms enjoyment. And in the same way with people, there are some people that we just do life with. They're just in our lives. We don't necessarily like them to begin with. Um, they may not be attractive to us or, or they may not have any kind of qualities that make us uh, feel like we want to have a relationship. But over time, there's a familiarity that builds up and you actually become fond of the person over time, no matter who they are. And, uh, and so it begins to look a lot like agape. It begins to look a lot like a God kind of love because it has so many of those elements. The person doesn't have to, uh, you know, uh, be talented or have a certain level of intelligence or have a certain a level of attraction or, or whatever. Just over time, because of familiarity, you grow in this form of, of love um, for them. And it allows us often to recognize value in people that we wouldn't at first sight have chosen. It's a very beautiful thing that God does, um, but the important bit is it still cannot be sustained by itself. It just, familiarity isn't enough to carry a relationship, and we often find that within familiarity are the seeds of hatred. You know how you, you could love a, a pair of comfortable shoes, and then one day you just hate, you want to throw them out. It's not enough. It's not an undying kind of love. And so finally, to end off this morning, we come to agape. And if we had to put up an Instagram pic of agape, it would look like this. That would be a truer reflection of what God's love looks like. This is what God described his love as. It's a supernatural love, and this is the primary love. When the scripture tells us that God is love, it says God is agape. It's this, um, th this kind of, of love that is supernatural, that is divine, that is committed, that is unconditional love. And we experience it through God as a primary love uh, in our lives. And all the other loves, eros, phileo, and storge, will let us down and disappoint us. This is where the disillusionment come in. All the other loves will disappoint us if we elevate them to the place of agape. If we make them bigger than agape, we set ourselves up for failure in our relationships when we have idolized the other three loves above the love of God or the God kind of love. So we need to be very aware that the other loves may make great secondary loves, but horrible primary loves. They should never be given first place, only second place. Your romantic relationships especially for all the single people, it can be easy to, idol to uh, uh, idolatize them, idolize them, 
Now you know, that's how you know it's, it's time for me to wrap up, okay? <laughs> so it can be easy to idolize them and to, to, to elevate them to this place where I won't be fulfilled unless I, I have romantic love. It's easy to take friendship and, and to raise it to that same level, to idolize it and say, my friends are my everything. Without my friends, I am nothing. Or uh, to take storge, familiarity, and become so comfortable in your environment that you're not willing to become vulnerable or to risk change that real love requires. Because if we could just, go, if we could just look at that pic again of Jesus holding that cross, does that look comfortable? Does that look like storge? No, that is, that is something deeper. And so a true relationship and true love will disrupt your comfort. It will drive you beyond your comfort because it is driven by something greater. It is fueled by something supernatural that says, this is not about me. This is not about my comfort. This is not about my happiness. This is not about me getting everything I've ever seen on Instagram that I always wanted. This is not about me fulfilling all of my dreams that I posted on Pinterest. This is about me being a part of and experiencing and walking out a greater kind of love that means that I am second and I'm living for others first. That I am experiencing the love of God, how he gave himself up for me, and in return, as a response, I give myself up for others. That's a God kind of love. This is a choice and a commitment and a covenant. It's a choice. This kind of love is a choice to remain committed, to stand in a covenant. And when the Bible tells us that God is a God of love, this is the, the purest expression of love. This is, this is how God demonstrates His kind of, kind of love. In John 3, 16, it said, For God so agape the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's agape. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his agape for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's agape. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8 speaks about agape, and it speaks about it by saying that agape, love, is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You see, there's an element of selflessness in all that. We, we can be very self-centered in the other loves. Agape says it's not about me. I'm patient. I'm kind. I'm, I'm not self-centered. I'm, 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 I'm not irritable or resentful. I don't harbor things. I don't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. I bear all things, perseveres, believes all things, hopes all things, stays positive. That's the kind of love that God wants, to, uh, wants us to have. What inspires us to value and to hold on to and to form agape in our lives and to be committed in the way that God is committed to us? Because it's easy to love things that are lovely. It's easy for us to feel affection for things that are by nature uh, uh, lovely or beautiful or attractive. It's easy for us to, to look at a work of art and, and be moved by it. It's easy for us to watch the sunset and, 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 and enjoy it. It's easy for us to listen to a beautiful piece of music and, and be swept up by it. If, we, if you were listening to, to, to your favorite artist or, or Ryan's favorite artist, Justin Bieber, that would be something that you would listen to. He told, he told, me, about, he told me before the service, actually. So for Ryan, it's so easy to love the music of Justin Bieber. But agape, agape doesn't love things because they're lovely. Agape doesn't love things because they're lovable. Agape doesn't love things because they've performed well. Agape doesn't love things because they're attractive. Agape loves things because agape is agape. And I want you to know that's why God loves you. Not because you've done a great job, not because you've earned it, not because you're a good Christian, 
not because you're lovely in all of your dealings, not because you never fail or you never make mistakes or, or you just have such a great life. God loves you, like the scriptures tell us, even when you are a sinner. He'll give himself up for you. Why does God do that? Does God love us because we are lovely? No, God loves us because he is love. He doesn't show us affection because we are good, but because he is good. It's a reflection of his goodness, not ours. And that is this truer kind of love that has no care of self or no self-defense. It's a reckless abandonment to embrace the other. 1 John 14 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the true reflection of love. Not that God was loved by us and then responded, but out of his own self, from who he is, chose to love us. God does not love you because you are good or good looking or because you've performed your duty, but because he is good. And this is sacred love. This is godly love. And what it does is it produces a response. And so the scripture says that we love God because he first loved us. When God shows us that agape, we respond with agape. A choice and a commitment to stand in a covenant. And that's why the truest reflection um, that we have on, in, this, in our human relationships of our God kind of relationship, the relationship we have with our Savior, is marriage. This is illustrated and embodied in marriage as the only place, it's the most sacred of all human relationships because it's the only place where all four of the loves are drawn together in one context. Where you will have romantic love, where you will have friendship, where you will have familiarity, and what the foundation of every good marriage and every good relationship and every good friendship truly must be is agape. I'm committed to you not because you make me feel good, not because you are attractive, but because I have chosen out of the core of who I am, as the love of God has been shed abroad in my heart, to be committed and loving to you. And that's the truest form of love. The truest form of love, a choice and a commitment, just like Jesus did on the cross for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And in our relationships, we need to know what that kind of love is. I'm going to end on John 13, 34. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love, agape, one another. Just as I have agaped you, you are also to love one another. So God actually instructs us, Jesus instructs us to love others in the same committed, relentless way that God has loved us. I'm telling you, if we understand that idea of love, our relationships are going to start changing because it's no longer about us, but it's about us being committed to the people God has called us to love. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together this morning.